My God is an awesome God. He reigns from heaven above. With wisdom, power, and love, my God is an awesome God. What does he expect of us, and what does he demand of us? Well, let's hit it immediately. He demands obedience. He expects obedience. His word says that obedience is far better than sacrifice. In other words, God cares more about obedience than any religious observant that you and I can possibly do. So I want you to listen, if you would, on purpose this day, because what we're going to see here today is really, really important, not only to us as a group, but more importantly even, to each of us as individuals. If you think that by completion of a ritualistic observance of some kind or some kind of religious activity, no matter what it might be, that you're earning some kind of points with God, and yet apart from the outward actions, you're actually living a life that is disobedient to God's word, then I would go so far as to say that you're just as disillusioned as Saul. You see, Saul was... Israel's first king, and Saul disobeyed God, and he became very disillusioned, a, just a, a changed man. You can read all that in 1 Samuel chapter 15. You might say he was even quite out of alignment. Have you ever been out of alignment in your life? Have you ever been out of alignment physically, out of alignment mentally out of alignment, spiritually, just it's not a good thing. So stop for a moment and think. Let's go back and take a look at some people in the Bible. Who are your heroes? Just think about that. I say, well, who are my heroes? You know, you read in certain publications a man of the year, person of the year, um, woman of the year, business person of the year, athlete of the year, etc., etc., etc. And from those kind of things, we get role models. And, and, and I wonder how we choose our heroes, our role models. Do we choose them based on, well, what have you done for me lately? That kind of a philosophy. I hope not, because I really believe that we today are living in a day and time when we need authentic heroes. We need people who will model for us not just what's hot or not just what's popular or not just what the, the gang is doing at the time, but show us over a period of time values that last, people who demonstrate for us what God wants us to be in this life. Now, I need your help for just a moment. Would all of you free your right hand from whatever might be in it and just hold it up? Just hold up your right hand. Everybody could do that for me. Now, while it's up in the air, make a fist. Make a fist. Don't, don't point it at anybody. Now, bring that fist to your cheek. Bring it right up there and hold it. Okay? Okay? Now, as I look around, 
I see something very, very unique. More people will follow an example than will follow instruction. I said bring it to your cheek. I did this, and many of you did the same thing. You know, I, it, it was kind of amusing. Go ahead. Thank you. You see, here's the point. We follow an, an example a lot quicker than we follow instruction. And oh, if that be true, how we need people who will be legitimate examples and worthy of following. And that's one of the real values, if you ever wondered, of studying the great characters of the Bible. The scriptures don't gloss over their errors or their sin. The Bible doesn't pretend that our heroes are perfect. Their failures are very open and honestly documented. It's a tremendous inspiration to see how God takes very imperfect people, and this is a great this is a great help to me. I hope it is too. It's an encouragement. God takes very imperfect people who are totally committed to him and uses them in a great way or a way that you would never expect. I mean, nobody's that nobody notices. Not perfect. Not reaching that state of perfection yet, but perfectly Aligned. Let's all say that title together this morning. Perfectly aligned. Can we do it one more time? Perfectly aligned. I want to do a biographical study for a few minutes of the life of David. He's called a man after God's own heart. There's more written about David than any other character in all the Old Testament. Abraham has 14 chapters. Joseph has 13. Jacob has 11. Moses has 40. But there are 66 chapters in the Old Testament given over to the life of David. In fact, there are 57 New Testament references to him. Now, David was the youngest son of Jesse. He was a shepherd lad of Bethlehem. He was a giant killer. He was a musician. He was a composer of psalms. He was the greatest king Israel has ever known. Yet maybe what draws many of us to him is the fact that he isn't this polished marble personality just like perfection walking, but he's blood and bone and breath. He's a man who shares our struggles, struggles of spirit, struggles of soul. And although he's a man of glorious triumphs, he's also a man with some great tragedy in his life and some that never really, the scars never really left them even to his dying day. And because he struggled in life, we can gain help for our struggles. Look at his struggles. Whatever they may be, they may be struggles that you or I have or have had. Discouragement. Arrogance. Sexual temptation. Even parenting. We can learn a lot from David. So much from that life. So I want to start by looking at David being chosen king, and I want to see a nobody that nobody noticed, except for God. You see, everyone wants and needs to feel significant. 
But the important issue is what priorities and values do we set to establish that significance? Like, I would ask, whom do you want to impress in life? Or who impresses you? Well, to help us get God's perspective on this struggle, let's begin by looking at God's choosing David. For in that choice, there are some uh, real character qualities that made David a man noticed by God. And those are the ones worth living by. And of course, we shall be introduced to what we will call perfect alignment. So first, I'm going to lay a foundation for you. So you can clearly understand why God needed to make David the king. You see, Israel had a king. His name was Saul. So why was David chosen? Well, to answer, you, you, you've got to go back a ways, about 40 years, as a matter of fact. 1 Samuel, the 8th chapter. The people of Israel during that time, uh, as one writer puts it, were on a long drift from God. They're far away from God. Finally, they get to a place where they demanded a king. They're no longer satisfied with God being their ruler through a prophet, in this case a man named Samuel, and so they requested an earthly king. So we come to 1 Samuel chapter 8, and let me read a few verses starting in verse 1. As Samuel grew old, he appointed <clears throat> excuse me, his sons to be judges over Israel. But they were not like their father, for they were greedy for money. They accepted bribes and perverted justice. Finally, the leaders of Israel met at Ramah to discuss the matter with Samuel. Look, they told him, you are now old, and your sons are not like you. Give us a king like all the other nations have. End of quote. Now look at the three reasons why they wanted a king. <clears throat> Reason number one, Samuel's getting old. Reason number two, Samuel's sons are wicked. And reason number three, all the other nations have a king. Pretty deep stuff, huh? All three reasons show that they have, their trust is more in man than it is in God. Basically, they're saying, gosh, Samuel, one of these days, and probably soon, you're going to be leaving us. You're going to expire. And your boys are abusing their office terribly. And, and oh, besides, the other nations ask us who is our king, and we always have to say, our king is God, and he's invisible. And they say, right, right, your king is invisible. Mm -hmm. You know, that's embarrassing. So let us have a king, because everybody else does. Samuel's not pleased by the request. The Israelites were to be a unique people, free under God's loving rule. But the people insist and insist and insist. And God tells Samuel, okay, let's give them what they want. Their first king is introduced to us, beginning in the ninth chapter of 1 Samuel. It's a man from the tribe of Benjamin by the name of Saul, as we've said, and the Bible tells us that part of his attraction for, for that position was that he was a magnificent physical specimen. He was young. He was tall. He, he made a good public image. 
and seemed to have the charisma to rally the people. <clears throat> Not much has changed in the political realm. Huh? But those characteristics don't ensure quality leadership. While he was significant to men, he was disobedient to God. So Saul began his reign as a humble servant, but it wasn't very long till his real character was revealed. And we see that in the end, he was terribly disqualified for that job. His problems are all outlined in chapters 9 through 15. Take time sometime in 1 Samuel and read those. I think you'll, you'll, you'll be better for it. Basically, Saul is a proud man who turns out to be very stubborn, impetuous. He has a strong self-will. It's his way or the highway. He knows everything there is to know about everything, and he's just going to rule with an iron fist. These character flaws led to his own downfall. And because of his deliberate disregard for God and for the orders of God and the ways of God's leadership, and his inability to place himself completely under divine authority and control, the Lord ends up taking the royal monarchy from Saul. Now Samuel is upset, rightly so. He was upset that they chose a king, number one. Number two, he was upset that this first king had failed so miserably. Maybe he took it a little personally, I don't know. <coughs> then I come to my text chapter, 1 Samuel chapter 16. And here's what we hear God saying to Samuel in verse 1. How long will you mourn for Saul? <laughs> Since I have rejected him as king over Israel. I want you to notice these next words very carefully. I am sending you to Jesse in Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be the king. So this time, God is going to choose a man on his terms. So with God's direction, Samuel goes to the family of Jesse and begins to look over all of Jesse's sons. He takes one look at Eliab, who's the oldest, and down in verse 6, it's, he says, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here. I don't know if Eliab was the time man of the year or what. He, he, he just took one look at him and he said, That's surely the man. That's surely the one. This has got to be the one. Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before me. He really impressed Samuel. He must have been a great physical specimen himself because Samuel basically says, this has to be him. God says in verse 7, Woo! whoa, 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 wrong answer. Uh, I know that's a loose paraphrase, but basically God tells Samuel to quit looking at outward appearance. And later on when David meets the giant Goliath, we see why. Eliab simply didn't have the inner qualities that were necessary. He was not spiritually deep. He was very jealous. He was cowardly. The key verse in this passage for our struggle, well, what makes a person then truly significant in the sight of God? And here it is, also in verse 7. Look, God says, the Lord does not look at the things man looks at. 
Man looks at the, the out, outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Now, if you don't get anything else, if you don't get anything out of the message, I want you to get this and understand just one essential eternal principle. God does not see people as the world sees people. And if you go away from here today and that's all you learned, you've learned a lot. That David, lowly little David, would be anointed Israel's next king, would not exactly have been the world's choice. Too young, no combat experience, no education, a sheep herder. Oh, come on. But in the mind of God, who's impressed not by brawn or brains, but by a heart completely his, it just made perfect sense. So God shows us through the choosing of David that someone that evidently was unnoticed by man had just great worth to God. Apparently, even Jesse, David's father, didn't recognize his youngest son's leadership potential. And God saw David's heart, and he said, David, you the man. You're the man. Here's what we're witnessing in that scene. We're witnessing affirmation and positive reinforcement. We're witnessing praise in, pla in place of pettiness, and we're, we're witnessing glory instead of gossiping. I, I thought about this lately. Wouldn't it be terrific if we all could just change our mentality and look beyond the surface of people and see their hearts? Sometimes we, 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 might be, we, we, we might be misled by people's motives. I understand we are sometimes. But, but just be sure of this. God never is. God knows motives. I get so tired of people, nitpickers, I call them, and judgmental know-it-alls. Just, just, just try this for one time. Before passing judgment, before giving that opinion, before telling what you think are all the bad points about that person, whether you have anything to back it up or not, and, and, and all this, of course, is done orally. And, of course, the brave way now is to do it on social media because everybody gets really brave there. Before any of that, why not start training yourself to look at that person or those people and say something nice? And first of all, say something good. And say something uplifting. And you start practicing that, you'll forget all that other junk. But we're so prone we're so prone to put someone down before they've had a chance to be built up. So when God refuses Eliab, the rest of Jesse's sons are, are paraded before Samuel, and God rejects every one of them. And Samuel finally says, way down in verse 11, Samuel asks he, uh, Jesse, he said, Are these all the sons you have? <laughs> and Jesse says, Well, I do have one more. He's out taking care of the sheep. I guess he kind of slipped my mind. You see, Jesse had eight sons. Some, uh, 
Scholars think he had nine. He might have had another son that uh, died early on in life but before, uh, before having children, and he wouldn't be counted in the, in the numbers. But anyway, whether it's eight or nine. And he had two daughters. So I, I don't know. I guess when you have 10 or 11 kids, you could forget one momentarily. I, I hope not. I hope not. If you have a big family, I, I, hope, you, I hope you won't forget anybody. Samuel says in the last part of verse 11, well, send for him. Now listen to this, how interesting this is. We will not, I love this, we will not sit down until he arrives. Wow. Now, no, you don't know and neither do I. We, we don't know how long they stood there. I hope it was a good many hours. But anyway, because the Bible doesn't tell us how far away David's herd was. I mean, it wouldn't have been right next door to the you know, to the deck and the barbecue and everything. It must have been off somewhere. And so we don't know how far away, so we don't know how long it took. But when he comes, the picture that I have in my mind is one of my favorite pictures in Scripture. Oh, I love it. I love it. Picture it now in your head. David comes in from the field Seizes seven or eight brothers, let's say seven brothers, all dressed up, everybody standing around. David's got on his shepherd's garb, and he still smells like sheep and everything that goes along with sheep. And God basically says to Samuel, there, there, he's the one. He's the one. Mm. So the prophet, I mean... He must have done a double take. He must have thought, oh no, there's a mistake here somewhere. But he didn't, he didn't pause. Once God gave him the command, and once God said he's the one, Samuel goes right over to David, takes the horn with the oil, and pours the oil on his head. It runs down the back of his neck and all over his lovely shepherd clothing, and he says, David, you are the next king. And I think David's response might have been, huh? What an unexpected, unorthodox, unanticipated choice. Here is a boy that nobody seemed to notice, yet God did. Just, just take heart here. Nobody, see, even his father temporarily forgot about him. Because God doesn't look at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. And God is all for things being perfectly aligned. Now let me demonstrate. Let me drill down for a minute. I mean by that, by perfect alignment, according to God's will. Just stop and consider with me. God sent Samuel to Bethlehem of Judah. There were different Bethlehems in that day. But that was very specific. To anoint a 15-year-old boy to be king of Israel. Nearly a thousand years later, God brings forth another notable boy king, from Bethlehem of Judah, of the house and lineage of David. 
Bethlehem, by the way, means house of bread. And it's closely related in the language to house of battle. And Jesus said of himself, I am the bread of life. Now David won't start reigning as the king for another 15 years. Meaning he starts to his rule at or near the age of 30. Jesus began his earthly ministry at or near the age of 30. David enjoyed a 40-year reign, often referred to as the glory years of Israel, still being considered that, under her greatest king. And when King Jesus returns to reign over the world, we will then behold the greatest reign of peace under the Lord of lords and the king of all kings, ruling from the throne of David. First there was Eliab, then Abinadab, then Shammah, followed by Nathaniel, fifth was Radai, sixth was Ozem, and believe, we believe that one son died childless, so he remains nameless. So David is seventh chronologically in terms of fathering children. And you say, so are numbers in Scripture even significant? Oh, the number seven is symbolic of spiritual perfection, fullness, or completeness. And the number eight is symbolic of a new beginning. Oh boy, I just see over and over and over and over in this connected story the biblical marvel of perfect alignment. Say, so you seem to be a little excited about the Bible. I, I, I don't know if I believe the Bible, Bob. Well, whatever. Let me just tell you, I don't have enough faith to doubt it. The perfect alignment, nearly a thousand years apart, of the Word of God, of the calling of David, of the anointing of David as the King of Israel for its glory years. Now, what was it that God saw in David's heart? Now, why did God make this selection anyway? What, what, when his brothers, any one of those men might have, might have seemed to fit the bill better. Well, when you, you study David's life, uh, I think you, you'll see qualities in David that prompted God to select them as king. And these are qualities that set a standard for us. Qualities in David that set a standard for us. And they are these. First, David possessed a heart of dependence on God. I want you to notice comparison between Saul's heart and David's heart. When it came to dependence upon the Lord, Saul took matters into his own hands. He knew better. He thought he was going to miss a chance for his own glory. And he said, oh yeah, well God said go in and destroy them all and take everything down and get rid of it. Uh, but it'll be okay as long as we take some of the best livestock and we'll bring them back and sacrifice them to him. Listen to David in Psalm 62, verses 6 through 8. God alone is my rock and salvation. He's my fortress. I will not be shaken. My salvation and my honor depend on God. He is my mighty rock, my refuge. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your hearts to him, for God is our refuge. Now there, my friend, is a dependent man after God's own heart. 
Let me ask you, do you have a heart that depends on God? Are you depending on the Lord in that relationship? In your marriage? With your children? Or are you just kind of making it up as you go along? Fake it till you make it. Are you depending on God to take care of your need? Or are you just constantly wondering how things are going to work out? Do you believe what Jesus says? Or do you really believe what Jesus says? That God knows every sparrow that falls to the ground and you're worth more than all of them. That God even knows the number of the very hairs on your head. Yeah, he said that, but do you believe it? Oh, no, no, no. Do you really believe it? Because if you do, and if I do, and if all of us do, why do we so often depend on ourselves to run this life? Having a heart of dependence means depending on God no matter what. Understanding that in the end, our only source of life is Him. So the question really comes down, are you perfectly aligned? Second thing we see in characteristics of David that are a, a blessing to us and, and certainly an example, David had a heart of obedience for God. Listen to his beautiful expression in Psalm 40, verse 8. I take joy in doing your will, my God, for your law is written on my heart. And in Psalm 119, verse 11, he wrote, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. You see, David's desire was to be obedient. He purposed to find new ways, honestly and genuinely, to discover God's will and to do it. Those that know some of David's life might ask this question, and it's, 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 it's okay to ask it. So David, uh, uh, if he was so obedient, why did he commit terrible sins? Why did he, why did he even commit adultery and then cover it up with even more heinous sins than that? As I said at the beginning, and I know you were listening, the Bible doesn't gloss over sin or errors of great Bible characters. But let me say this, and I'm not defending David, but even in that experience, you see David's sensitivity to his primary desire, and that is to obey God. See how unlike Saul he was? who always tried to whitewash his sin and just change up the way God had ordered things and just do it his way, David tried to obey and wanted to obey. And his heart lived to obey. Saul whitewashed his sin and made excuses. David was crushed. David wept and he pleaded with God. Sometime, if you have the time, I would ask you to read Psalm 51. It's, it's, we call it David's confession, but it's, it, I like this analogy. It's like barging into a room unannounced and unexpectedly finding someone there pouring out their confession of sin to the Lord. 
Psalm 51. You feel like you're an intruder. David is pleading for forgiveness, for he is so distraught that he has disobeyed. He hated the sin because it hurt. And God's not looking for hearts that are perfect. Can Bob, can you say that again? Yeah, God's not looking for hearts that are perfect. God, you say, well, I'm waiting to do the religious thing when I get everything in line and I'm perfect. And I said, well, then you'll, you'll always be searching. You'll never get there. Because God is not looking for perfect hearts. God is not looking for hearts that are completely in tune and never disobey and never have a wrong thought and never say a wrong word and never take a wrong action. God's not looking for hearts that are perfect, but hearts that are striving to obey and to do his perfect will. Not perfect, not perfect, but perfectly aligned. A third thing that David possessed was the heart of a servant. I love that. In Psalm 89, verse 20, we read where God says, I have found my servant David. I appointed him by pouring holy oil on him. My servant David. Beautiful words. You see, servanthood is humility in practice. To be a servant means to perform the menial tasks, no matter what they are. To be a servant is to not care who gets the credit. To be a servant, you just have one goal, the success of your authority or your superior. That's what it is to be a servant. I read this story that amplifies that. A few years ago, a popular radio Bible teacher said that one morning he was in a church, he was preaching in a church, and afterwards a lady came up to him and said, oh, I wanted to meet you so much. You really, you did? And and she said, yes. She said, I have listened to your sermons on the radio for a long time, and they have turned my life around. I didn't know the Lord. I didn't understand salvation. My whole life has been changed because of your messages. And I just wanted to meet you, and I knew you were going to be here today. And this is such a blessing. And and also, I have a friend here with me, this friend of mine, and I want you to meet my friend And she named the name of the friend, and she turned back to the preacher, and and she said, I'm sorry. She said, "Um, I I can't pull up your name. What was your name? She'd forgotten his name. And you read that story, you hear it told, you could say, well, wait, wait, wait. If those sermons had changed her life so much, how could she have forgotten who gave the sermon? The point is, of course, that she hadn't forgotten where they'd come from. And the preacher said, I was thrilled. She didn't even know my name. She was simply remembering the message and not the human messenger. It was the word of God that was being honored. Hallelujah. And that is a humble servant. David had a heart like that, and God honored him. Jesus said in Mark 9, 35, anyone wanting to be the greatest must be the least, the servant of all. Well, he lived that. You know what David did after he was told he was going to be king? He went back out and tended sheep. Is that what you would have done? I know what I would have done. I would have been tempted to catch the first taxi to Jerusalem to check out my new palace. 
and to have my, my new Vistaprint business cards printed up, changing them from David the Shepherd to David the King. Not David. You just go down a verse or two to verse 17, actually 17, 18, and 19 of 1 Samuel 16. You'll see that Saul, the king, needed a musician. And his messenger found David back with the sheep. And they knew that he was a musician. Hmm. Not too proud to tend the sheep. Not too proud to be at the service of the king. Not too proud to work on the parking team. Not too proud to prepare communion. Not too proud to serve in the nursery. Not too proud to pick up and clean up after service. Humility in practice. David, my servant. And then fourthly, David possessed a heart of integrity. I draw your attention to Psalm 78, verses 70 to 72. He chose David, his servant, from tending the sheep. I love this. He brought him to be the shepherd of his people. Oh, David, all that sheep herding is going to come in handy. Because you're not the shepherd of the sheep anymore. You're the shepherd of the people. Mm-hmm. And David shepherded them with integrity. Mark those words. I've got mine underlined. With integrity of heart. You know what integrity is? It's what you are when no one's looking. It's being away from everybody you know and choosing the right to do what God would have you do anyway. It's doing your job when there's no superior around and doing it well. Integrity is what kind of language you use before you find out that new guy in the office is a preacher. <laughs> God knew David as one with a heart of integrity. The Word of God proves that. It says it in Psalm 72. Would God say the same about you, about me, about any of us? Let's, let's look deeply and think seriously. You see, David was a nobody that nobody noticed. But God knew him, just like God knows you. And God doesn't look at the surface. I'm so glad. And he saw in David a man after his own heart. What does God see in you? Oh, this is a nice story, Pastor, but it doesn't really, you know, I don't really identify it. I'm not going to be a king of anything. And it, No, no. God sees you like he saw David. God not, does not look on the outward appearance. God sees the heart. And so when he looks at you, what does he see? I know it's a convicting question, but it also can be an encouraging question. There's a very famous story about a very famous man by the name of Michelangelo. 
And he's on the street of Florence, Italy one day, and he sees a block of marble laying in an empty lot. And he inquired of it. And he heard the owner say, it's worthless now. It was good for, uh, it was good for some paving blocks. Nobody wants it now. And uh, Michelangelo just shook his head. And he said, if you don't mind, I would like for you to send it to my studio. Here's what he said. Here's what he said. An old, just an old, old block of, of, of marble lying there. He said, sir, there's something special imprisoned in that stone. And of course, later, you probably know, the master sculptor chiseled away at the rejected stone and he created the famous masterpiece called David that is still renowned today. Oh, it's of no use. It's just, uh, it's no good anymore. It's good for nothing but paving blocks, and uh, so it's just going to sit there. And yet the artist, the master sculptor creator, if you will, looked at that piece of rock and said there's something special imprisoned in that stone. As God would say about you, my friend, there's something very special imprisoned in that body. You may not think you look like much. You may not think you're very significant. Hey, let's be honest with one another. Not many of us here will ever be real celebrities or make uh, the national top ten list. But what a glorious thing when the master creator, sculptor Jesus takes a life that is scarred with sin and others think it's good for nothing now and turns it into a masterpiece for him. You are significant. God created you. He sent his son and only son. Just that one only son to die for you. And right now, he wants to use you in a mighty way if you'll just yield your heart to him in perfect alignment. <laughs> I read this account of a pastor, a man much younger than I, but several years ago, he wrote this. He said, I had what some people thought might have been a heart attack. So the only way to really tell was to go. I was at the hospital, and they decided to put me through all kinds of heart tests, you know, the, all the different, the NGGram and all the other grams. And he said, I, as I lay there, and the doctor is probing my blood vessels, finally he said, Mr. whatever the last name was, he said, I'm a little embarrassed here. Because, to be honest with you, you've got the arteries of a 10-year-old, clean and pure. Yeah, the pastor said, but more than hearing a cardiologist tell me, and that was good news, that was great news, but more than hearing a cardiologist tell me my arteries are clean, what I want most is for Jesus, the great physician, to look within me and say, there, right there, is a heart of dependence, a heart of obedience, a heart of servanthood, and a heart of integrity. There 
is a man after my own heart. I want that, he said, more than anything because he has a heart for me. And you know what? He has a heart for you. And you, and you, and you, and you, and you, and you, every one of us. God has a heart for us. How do I know? Because he showed it. By giving it up on Calvary's cross. Where man's dire extremity became God's perfect opportunity. Where your sinfulness and shame and mine were met by perfect love, kindness, mercy, grace, and forgiveness. Amen? And where my broken sense of nothingness was infused by his undeserved almightiness. And at that point, we became, aha, we became perfect, perfect, always in line, never stepping out of line, always obedient, perfect, no, 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 and no. Where we became perfectly aligned. <laughs> 